0: Another room in my apartment as I find the perfect place until I get soundboards and sound to put on the walls to record this in decent audio. So apologies on the visuals. Welcome to the show. You can check us out on magic.facefacegames.com. And today is a very special episode. We got Andy, over reliable, but we finally got Brian Godley back on the show. How's it going, my man? Sexiest Men in magic.
1: It's going fantastic, <laughs> KYT. I, I should come on more often because I really need you to boost my f- self esteem. You know, I might be feeling a little bit down about myself. KYT will always bring me back up. And I appreciate you bringing in, me into your bedroom. I didn't know it was going to be this kind of intimate setting.
2: I'm really excited <laughs> right now.
0: Also excited to have Eduardo, uh, Saj, how oh, am I? I'm butchering his name live, Sajka on the show. I uh, can't wait to have him on the show. And, um, yeah, I, I, the only comment I have, Brian, is like one of your profile pictures, your SG profile pictures, like too old. I know it's not sexy enough. It doesn't reflect your, your current level of sexiness. I'm, like,
1: I'm, I'm not getting sexier. I promise you, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> as, as I become <laughs> older and older, I, it's not going to get better. I think we should cling to the past, and that's, that's as good as it's going to get.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of good, um, there's been some big tournaments uh, this past weekend there's there's a wave of rptqs around the world some happen in montreal and Andy's prepping for his upcoming in toronto but it's uh, we gotta start the show with where have you been uh brian like you last we talked uh i, I don't think you had moved yet and i just want you to give our first strike listeners a, an update on, on on to where you're at and yeah everything that's happened since
1: Sure, so I left the East Coast of the states, and I'm now on the West Coast. I live up in Seattle. I uh, basically moved as far away from my old place as you possibly could. I, I drove like the 3,000 miles, and it took five days, so very, very far away. That's why you see a, a new backdrop behind me now, new room. Um, and beyond that, I stopped practicing law, at least for the time being, and I'm just making content all the time i'm talking about magic uh over on the game podcast which i know a lot of your listeners also tune into Uh, i just launched a new podcast which i'm super excited about it's called head games and it's still part of the game podcast family but we're focusing more on the psychological aspects of gaming and also not only focused on Magic the Gathering. We try very hard not to be Magic-specific, even though that's you know where a lot of my background lies and where my co-host, Jonathan Carter's background, also lies. But we've also competed in other things. You know, I've played poker and going back a ways now, but I competed in sports at a decent level. So we, we talk a lot about just performance, preparation, uh, just getting your head in the right place for all kinds of competition. And it's exciting to be able to branch out a little bit into a new space. We have a lot of like strange listeners. like My parents listen every week where they certainly do not listen to any of my magic podcasts. And our editor, uh, Connor O'Donnell, I know his father is a big fan. So we're really hot with parents right now. (laughs) For whatever reason, we've cornered that market. Um, But it's cool to be able to attract uh, a new set of listeners and people who otherwise wouldn't get to hear Um, you know, what I've been up to. It's nice that I'm having a lot of old friends who I haven't talked to in a while being like, oh, I listened to your podcast. It was really great. Um, So it's been an awesome experience. And also writing for Star City Games right now. So you can always read my my content over there. And yeah, just really kind of diving in pretty hard to all forms of content creation. Maybe a little video coming soon. I don't know. A little bit of streaming. Still don't like streaming all that much, but a little bit of streaming here or there. Uh, but I think maybe some produced video might be something I'm getting into sometime soon as well. So a lot of stuff going on.
0: I I can't help but feel a sense of validation that I was right about you, Brian. Uh, that no, I, I saw the talent from day one, and it just needed uh, a platform like SCG for 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 you to flourish. Like honestly, I don't know if you did anything specific because the the game podcast was already known by a lot of spikes, but it really. Uh, When you got on, and I'm being totally honest, it's then when it really decided to flourish, you pushed Jerry to do more? Or was it because, like, what I've also noticed is that you're one of the most active people um, on Discord when it comes to interacting with the listeners. Do you think it's that? Because there is something that you've done um, that has took it to a next level. I can feel it. It's not just, um, I'm not just saying it.
1: I, th- I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. It's the fact that Jerry and I gel really well together. We genuinely like talking with each other. We have a good time doing the podcast. And not to say that he didn't have that relationship with the prior co-hosts, but I, I think it's, it's strong with us. We get along really well. And uh, I think that's had a large impact. Like you said, I tried to be very community focused and always engaged. And, you know, when I was around the First Strike Nation more, I think people saw that. I I really like helping people out. I like talking to people who are taking the time to listen to my content. It truly means a lot to me that people take the time to listen to what I'm talking about. Um, and, And I think also one of the things that's interesting about Jerry is that he is considerate of other people's time and attention span almost to a fault. Like he feels guilty telling you what he's working on and what he's doing because he's so selfless and like interested in what's going on with your life that he won't tell you about his project. And that extends to the podcast somewhat. He doesn't want to spam people's feeds with advertisements. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to be in your face about it. He lets you find his content. If you like it, he's very happy for that. You get whatever amount of time he has to share with you, he'll share it with you, but he's not going to force you to listen to his content. Whereas I can be a little bit more in your face, like, hey, listen to this. This new thing's coming out. This is great. Let me know what you think. It's, it's just a different, a, different, like, uh, a, a different style. I mean, we're, we're both respectful of people's times, but he does it to a very, very dramatic extent. He really doesn't want to take up any more space than he has to. Whereas you can tell I never shut up. So it's, it's very difficult uh, to get me not to talk about what I'm working on right now.
0: Go, going back to the, the Head Game podcast um, with your co-host and everything, I don't know, Brian, if you, you played the game long enough where there was a lot of online content, uh, books being published because the game was booming because of Chris Moneymaker and stuff like that. Did you get to the point where at some point the mental game and, and psychologists were, were trying to make their names in the space and there weren't even books like the, the Mental Game of Magic, The Mental Game of Magic 2 and stuff like that? I
1: work with a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Carter, who has made no content in this space. He hasn't produced anything before, but what he has done is he's done a lot of performance psych work, a ton. He's, he works with the U.S. Army. He's worked with some top esports competitors, be it in League of Legends or Overwatch, or he's worked with some Smash people, just all the top esports. He's had a hand in helping them improve their mental game, their psychological processes. He's, he's been in it for years now extremely experienced but he had never done anything in the space prior to the podcast and the way we found him was that he was a patron of the game podcast he had just like started playing competitive magic again and was participating in our discord and over the course of being in the discord and talking a bunch we got to know his background and Jerry and I both had this kind of like aha moment where i think it, it was the same day where we both like approached each other with this where this guy seems like he really knows his stuff and i think he would offer Uh, a lot to our listeners if we gave him a platform and jerry agreed i agreed whoever brought it first i don't remember but i finally got the chance to meet him at a tournament loved his personality got along with him right away and was like yeah we have to go forward with this so kind of the way you feel good about finding me I feel good about finding him because he's really good at what he does and he, he's really bright and he's just a good pos- podcaster. We've, done, we've recorded three episodes now. We're going to record our fourth very soon. He gets it. He's improving rapidly. He's only going to get better and better. Um, and I think the first episodes were good, to be honest with you. I think we came out of the gate very strong. So it, it's, it's awesome to see him really take to
2: it uh, very quickly.
0: I think a lot of it had to do with my sickles. Was- when I first read the other guy, it was one of like the first guy who had like a degree in psychology and stuff like that. And when he came, Jonathan came out. It was just like I just mentally associated it must be this guy. Like who else is doing it in this space? And uh, I guess it was a coincidence that these are coming in there. But but Brian, back to my earlier question: Were you part of that like the poker stuff? Were you aware of some of the people that were coming into the game and bringing that? psychology as, as an aspect of poker to attack?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can, I can look over at my bookshelf across the room right now, and I see I have uh, The Psychology of Poker sitting right there. And that's a very old book and probably laughable at this point. I can't see the name, but it was, it was published under like 2 Plus 2, so part of the David Skolansky series of books, and you know what ultimately became 2 Plus 2 forums. But absolutely, I was, I've been aware of this kind of approach to mental gaming forever now. And it's something that I I mean, I'm just in I'm into it. I'm into optimization and like trying to understand our think thinking processes better and you know just getting the most out of my tools. Because I don't think, especially when it comes to magic, I'm not like a magic prodigy. I'm I'm very far from that. And if you've met magic prodigies before and you see them sit down and play the game at this incredibly high level that like seemingly comes natural to them you you know the difference between and i think you would put yourself in the same category kyt you know the difference between them and us like they just do things on a totally different level that's not where we're at so i need to train i need to think i need to learn and all of these things are improved by better processes and and understanding how our brain works and that's why i've always had such an interest in it
0: same man it's like to bring it into the mtg world where where a lot of people are not exposed to that a lot of content and i'm excited and like you you and jerry said on the game podcast there's there's probably you were thinking about doing it bi-weekly but there's probably likely enough to get you going and, and excited about to talk every week uh especially with with, with an ex- expert in the field
1: yeah I mean, maybe when we get like 40 episodes in we'll be like uh-oh we should have slowed down a little bit but I- I'm telling you, we have a a stack of episodes to do and and tons of stuff to talk about and all these new formats we want to try out. There's going to be awesome stuff coming out as the weeks go on. And I'm I'm not worried about having enough content at all. We have plenty to talk about. and, And Jonathan is so just good at what he does and cares so much about his profession, too. Like, he's one of those people who's really invested in what he does and really believes in his mission. And that just leads to infinite topics. And at times it's just like, I just want to shut up and hear him talk. You know, it, it, he has so much to offer. I feel like I'm benefiting the tremendous amount by participating in this cast. So,
2: I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hearing more of, of what you, you end up doing with Jerry and with Jonathan as well. Um, so
0: let's, let's get that down to standard. Um, I, I, still, I can still hear your voice in my head talking about how Jerry was like, just play the best deck. And you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure that there's, there's other decks that offer better EV spots. <laughs> and I, I think you may, may have convinced him near the end. Uh, but, but Andy, we'll go to you. Uh, what
2: have you been preparing for, for this upcoming RPTQ in Toronto? Um,
3: I have played every single tier one to two deck in preparation, trying to see if, if there's anything I like, or at least just trying to figure out the decks enough to the point where I figure out like what is going to be good against them and what's go- what they're going to naturally be good against and how I could possibly position myself to, to beat the best deck or whether or not I just have to play the best deck in perhaps a way to tune to beat the mirror while also still having game against other stuff. So, l- lately I've been I, I have a, a, a horrible love affair with Teferi. It's one of my favorite cards that I've ever played with. It just feels backbreaking whenever you win with it. So I think I've spent more time than I should have preparing with every possible Teferi deck known to man. Like, I've played Blue, White, Red. I've played Esper. I've played tons of Bant Fog. I, I've, I've tried it all in an attempt to to kind of figure out if... I can play Teferi at the RPTQ and not be upset with myself. But what time and time keeps happening is that I'll I'll either lose to like Chandra or I'll lose to Sleep Siphoner when when my answers don't line up quite right. And then uh, I just, it, it frustrates me to the point where I'm not sure what to play. And then I'm like, all right, I'll play these decks. And then maybe because I'm so built with frustration, I lose with them all. I've lost with everything. Everything imaginable, I've lost with. But I think the the, the front runners are to play Bant Fog, uh, just Black Red, and uh, maybe Blue White. Those are, and actually Blue Black control is is up there. But I likely won't play it. But those the, those three are are the big three for me right now. And I'm still just trying to figure figure out some other things to see if I can decide which one I like. Or whether I'm just going to play a deck and and hate it while I do it.
0: <laughs> Brian, can Brian offer some insight to to help you narrow your choice down? <laughs>
1: Well, I I think I feel a lot like Andy does where, I mean, Teferi is just such an absurd, absurd magic card. And the decks surrounding Teferi are very, very good. They're like right there. And in fact, I played uh, an LCQ for the RPTQ here. I haven't been PPTQing. I'm just over the system. Like I'm not participating anymore. But Mox Boarding House, which is like five minutes down the road from me and is a tremendous, tremendous store that I really like playing at had the LCQ for the Seattle RPTQ. So I was happy to go play that. And I lost in the top eight. I played blue-white control. Uh, Jonathan Rosson's list, card for card. I just trusted him. He's played the deck a ton. I, I think he understands where things are at right now. Um, and I lost in the top eight. The deck felt good. I felt like I had game against everyone. I never felt like I was out of any games. There's, there's tools there. But it doesn't feel like the best deck. And I played Turbo Fog at GPLA, and I would say the exact same thing. I mean, I made some mistakes at that GP, and if you read my article, you you know what
2: I did wrong. So I certainly hindered myself there. But I I think that the Teferi decks are very
1: clearly sitting in Tier 1.5 now. And I think you can win with them. I think if you've played a ton of games and are comfortable with them, And have played no games with red black or blue black and don't want to jump ship this late in the game i get that that's a defensible choice you're not throwing away your tournament by playing the teferi decks but i do think that the red based aggro decks and blue black are probably overall better choices and and they comprise tier one right now so it's a question of what suits you, what suits your play style, what suits your time, what suits your practice, all that stuff. And you'll have to make that decision. But uh, yeah, I, I, kind of an open standard in in some sense, like there is a clear tier one, but there are other viable options as well. And if you have, you know, clever sideboard plans or even just well thought out, uh, flexible sideboard plans, you can get a lot of equity by choosing a tier 1.5 choice as well.
3: Yeah, it, it keeps feeling like Teferi is like a twelve out of ten card in an eight out of ten deck, and I get caught trapped by how how insane Teferi is. That's how I. that's basically how I feel every time I lose with those decks, is that like disallow sucks. That card is awful. And Teferi is insane, but like so many of the cards that go around it are bad and situational. The thing is when it's running on all cylinders, it's unbeatable. But
1: yeah, disallow sucks and, and the two mana counter spells are variable. They're either insane or the wrong card. So it's it's got a lot of uh
2: you know, you need a lot to go right to succeed with those decks. And you you feeling Does it narrow your choice a little? Does it give you a bit of a sense?
3: Like it it's probably making me like so I've played a ton of blue black mid range, but I, I don't know what it is in this format that's leading me to feel like this, but I don't like it as much as I used to. Maybe it's, I think a lot of it has came down to when uh, people were proposing different sideboard plans than me. And I just started to trust them because I thought, okay, these people are, are likely better than me, or at least know the deck better than me. I'll trust their sideboard plans. And I started to lose a lot more. And I'm not sure if that's because my decision is better or if it's just the way I play the games tend to work out better with certain cards still in my deck. And one that comes to mind the most is I often, before seeing everyone tell me to board Champion of Wits out, I kept Champion of Wits in against everything. And then all these Chain Whirler decks, I would get cha- uh, Chain whirler or whatever, and then I would bring back to Champion of Wits, and that's how I'd win all my games with Blue, Black, Midrange. But then everyone told me to board them out, and then now I'm boarding them out, and, get, and I feel like I'm getting caught without enough removal or without enough speed bumps or what, without my draws being smooth enough. So I get caught in a weird spot there. Maybe it's because I just need the comfort of of the champion with smoothing out my draw or the the inevitability for me when I'm playing the games, but that's what I started to lose the most with blue black.
2: Hmm. All right, I hope you I hope you figure it out, Andy. And uh, right now, I'm going to introduce for the first time
0: ever on the First Strike Podcast. Really excited to have Eduardo Satchik on the show. Someone who's notable. I don't know if this wiki. Is correct for being on three different national teams? Is that correct? I don't know.
4: Yeah. Okay. So one of those is a semi technicality, I guess, because it's like England and the United Kingdom, but I also have Canada. So you know, I, I at least try to do like uh, different borders as much as I can.
0: Uh, two Pro Tour current Platinum Pro, and and now the newly appointed. I, mean, I don't know the official title, but you put community um, community
2: it's all right community okay. consultant
4: is like What's the all- actual like business i'm trying to build uh right. but like it's pro player consultant i believe is the like title wizards is going for here all
0: right i wasn't sure it was pro player organized play
4: it's all or- good it's all good
0: and, we- <laughs> and a budget a budget pro points. someone that uh could, could be in, in contention for sure and Hall of fame someday uh super happy to have you on Eduardo. and uh, you're gonna be doing some coverage this upcoming weekend
4: yeah, so uh, Grand Prix Richmond and then Detroit the, the weekend after. So I'm 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 looking forward to like talking about three different constructed formats in a row. That's always exciting. Uh, yeah, start with the legacy standard and then go move on to modern. It goes really fast. Um, so I really want people to know more about you,
0: and I've obviously I've got inside sources around Canada, everywhere, and one of my sources tell me that. You make amazing fajitas. Uh, Can you confirm or deny that?
4: (laughs) I don't know if they're like amazing, but uh, like uh, one of the things uh, with uh, the testing team was I noticed um, essentially every time we were traveling to the US to prep for a tournament, you know, we go for a week and I noticed we were just like not eating well, right? Like we'd order takeout. Instant pizzas, whatever garbage there was, and it was ha- for me. It was having an adverse effect on testing because people were wasting time uh, and they were like not up to shape what they were testing right after. So one thing I started doing was well, we were lucky in Minneapolis where we had an actual like good food court with like food from everywhere, so it was really good there. Uh, but in Richmond, uh, we didn't have that, so our testing house. I became like the the cook for the house, so like I would do all the lunches and dinners. Um and yeah, fajitas is like one of the dishes I I enjoy doing. I make uh, my own guacamole and all that stuff. So it's, well, I enjoy it and apparently the team did too.
0: Um what did where, you learn how, how, is it all self-taught?
4: Yeah, I mean, well like my um I mean, my mom used to cook at home all the time and I I would learn. Um and then I kind of after university like I lived on my own and like I would teach myself different recipes to try to learn. So I like uh, doing a lot of uh, ADC cooking where like I'll have a protein, uh, some starch that can be like quinoa pasta, rice, potatoes, and then like some vegetables.
2: And I like combining those three like cores and then like combine making a meal out of whatever makes sense. Alright. Like, do you know how I learned about the, these famous fajitas? No, we'll go for it.
0: <laughs> I've got some sources. I've got some sources. Um, <laughs> um, what happened? Uh, shout out to Emily! Shout out to Emily! <laughs> oh,
4: Amelie, Okay, sure. Yeah. So, for those who don't know, my my girlfriend works at Face to Face, so <laughs> we uh, someone's on the inside there. <laughs>
0: uh, Brian, what about you? Brian, have you have you thought about like optimized food when it comes to tournaments?
2: Oh, it's, no,
1: it's tough for me because I'm a vegetarian. So I, you know, convention center food is usually deep fried garbage chicken. Um, you know, even if you were to have a salad, there's usually meat in the salad. So it, it's really tough. I try to just like get a good breakfast, bring a ton of almonds usually with me during the day, um, eat cliff bars, things like that, which aren't really great, but you know, you take what you can get. And it's hard. it really is. Magic tournaments are just not set up well for being able to properly get nutrition and, you know, take good care of yourself. And that's one of the, the real downsides about like the magic travel grind for me is I, I don't like how little emphasis I can put on like my routine things, my food, my exercise, things like that, which are important to me when I'm in my own environment and just go to absolute poop when I'm out in the magic community. So uh, it's tough. it's a tough
2: thing to balance.
0: In uh, order, do you bring that same type of balance, like at not just your pro tours, but at the GPs as well?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I
4: like O'Brien. I'm not vegetarian uh, myself, but uh, I have a nut allergy, so like, unfortunately, like those two things do not combine well. Um, because he's right, almonds are a really good uh, nutrition source, and there's a lot of other nuts I would recommend for that. Um, but yeah, like something that you know, like when I was younger, um, th- I mean, I would like do these things right like I would eat convention center food got a bit older I started being a little more careful so like uh convention centers usually have a salad option like I I go for whatever grilled chicken salad they have because that's like the best option I have um but recently like I know my like my digestive system gets like bad because it's it's not just the the food itself it's also uh you get less sleep overall. Uh you stress out a lot more because you're in more high pressure situations, uh and on a constant basis, right? There's no real break, so to speak. So yeah, your your like whole system gets shot. Like I'll drink roughly two to three times more water uh on like a day two of a GP compared to like a normal day in my life. Uh just because like, I, I won't get that water from food because it's erratic and like yeah, it, it's it's one thing, like, self-care in tournaments. I, I do wonder, like, at what point uh, we have to stop this dialogue of, like, you know, as a player, you should take care of yourself. I think that's like, one aspect. But the second aspect, like, uh, if like at Pro Tours, there's lunch breaks. Part of that is because you can't expect coverage or the crew to, like, just talk, like be on all the time. So then you need, like, a lunch break. And at the PT, you get a half-hour lunch break after fr- uh, round three, usually. And the thing is, um, you know, most people finish earlier, so that's your lunch break. It's at least half an hour. It could be a little longer. Um, I don't know if that can be implemented somewhere like other levels, like at GPS or RPDQs, but um, because like the days could still be long. But it's it's a dialogue to have. This you know this dialogue of we shouldn't necessarily force this harm on bodies, not because some people just don't have the stamina, and that rebutes people from participating and partaking in tournaments because they're to- they can see that they have to like go all the way. And some people may want a more relaxed experience. Uh, and I think that's why we're seeing like, so many of the side event packages picking up. It's because you're like, oh, well, I can play three hours, take a break, play three hours later like at my leisure. And I think that's just a way healthier approach than like the main event at a Grand Prix. Like The main event at a Grand Prix is just nuts. Like You play from 9 to 6, no breaks, and then after you have the whole evening. It just feels very weird for me.
0: I agree with that. I agree with that. Andy, you you bring a balanced breakfast to all your tournaments?
3: <laughs> that, that was more of a half joke of I eat breakfast and then I don't eat until I leave the tournament hall because I get like stressed out of the thought of leaving a tournament hall and then I get stressed out at the thought of paying $14 for a, a crappy hamburger. So I actually just typically just eat and then I wait. But I've actually played a PTQs back in the day with lunch breaks in them.
2: Oh. Yeah, yeah. I think I've played some
0: old-style PTQs that, that had a small lunch break in, in the middle. In Montreal, right? Like,
2: there, yeah, there was in some Montreal.
0: There were some, but uh, those don't exist anymore. Um, Eduardo, uh, let's, let's get right down to you. Being one of the coverage guys, uh, it's really curious for me uh, because one of the things that I felt the, the game lacks uh, – in terms of good coverage people, is, is that person that, that knows what he's talking about in terms of, of the competitive standpoint. And it's usually hard to find those people because those people are usually actively playing. They're, they're playing the game and they want the glory of playing. So how, how did you get on to be one of the commentators? Uh, well, first of all, that's the first question. Let's cool go with that.
4: Sure. Uh, I, and it's, uh, before I like move on, right, it's not just me, right? There's also... Uh, people like uh, Paul Rietzel, who like gets excellent feedback as well. So uh, this discussion isn't just about me in a way. It's about how um, the coverage team like got on board, like essentially talent, right? Reed Duke as well. I mean, there's the big segment coming up at GP Richmond with Reed Duke, uh, who's doing both playing and covering. Um, and I think there's a will there from the you know the coverage team to like try to seek out people that essentially. It's not just know what is going on in a match of magic, but also can communicate it well to the audience, and that's a really difficult skill set to combine. Um, and because of that, they're kind of. I, I think there's been this reliance on trying to have, have these people step up. Because personally, like I asked, that that was fundamental. Like if I like if you don't ask, this I don't think there's a chance you get on, to, unless you're like top, top, top. So. Uh, it's important to, to ask if that was the thing. And then when I started doing it, uh, the thing is, like, I got a bit of practice from doing my own stream. And uh, I guess I have a bit of background, in, like doing plays and other shows and things like that. So that's where and public speaking. So that's where that background comes from. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoy uh, covering games of magic because my tournament magic experience is extremely variable. It's quite stressful. While when you're covering, you focus purely on what makes the game enjoyable and you get to watch a wide variety of gameplay. Um, one of the things actually coming from, uh, I know this might sound off-base, but like coming from playing a Hearthstone tournament was that you have to prepare like four different decks. And like that gives you a variety in the gameplay while you play your tournament. And in Magic, sometimes uh, that can be difficult because... You don't get to see different as many different strategies as you want because you're fixed on one, and it's a core part of the experience, right? But when you're doing coverage, that gets thrown out the window totally, and you get to like see a bunch of different strategies, players that have totally different approaches to the game, and I think it's uh, and I think like one of my bigger weaknesses in the game is the actual decision making, but figuring out the decisions is I'm pretty good at it, and I can communicate that. So that's why I like doing cover just because it plays to my strengths and it downplays the weakness because I don't have to make the decision. The player is going to make it and I can just discuss the merit basically. I mean, that's, that's my, my view on it. And I, I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I, I think like, honestly, like even like it, just aside from me, I think like the people on board have been like, just, much better this year. Like when I see like people commenting on this uh, is the coast coverage. It's a lot more positive uh, the last year, year and a half than it was like three or four years ago. So it's like night and day in terms of how the community reacts. And that to me is already great. I, I love the fact that it's improved. I know they are working hard on improving it in the future. Like yeah, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. That there are have been other players that, that have stepped up. But I've like every time I've appreciated their re- coverage, and I've appreciated every time uh, you've been on. Oh, wasn't it? a tough, uh, decision to, to make, like, I think some people just love playing too much, but for you, was it, was it tough to, to just want to cover, like, to want to cover Richmond and and not just want to play it?
4: Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I can talk about, like, what the sacrifice there is, right, because, um, like, I'm missing, like, I know I'm platinum right now, but I'm not playing another tournament as platinum, like, that, that is ending, so I will be silver by one pro point, And Richmond and Detroit are tournaments where I could have chased those problems. So I'm making that conscious decision to go, okay, this is going to happen. And this is just reality. That said, um, I'm still going to pursue pure magic. So because of the cycle system, I'm going to probably, I'm like 80 to 90% on this. I haven't booked the flight, but it would be like, there's like a weird flight I can do like Warsaw, uh, Tokyo for Shizuoka, and then back to Liverpool, which is like, I think 1500 Canadian, plus like, whatever the travel is. And like, that would be like, a fun travel, and that does three GPs plus two in North America. So as long as I can X for two of those five GPs I do, or do something at the Pro Tour, that would get me gold for, because I got the Team Series invite for Pro Tour Atlanta, then I would get like, gold for two more cycles, and then I would get like, an invite. I'm sure like, I carry that on. So, um, yeah, we're finally seeing the benefits of the cycle system as well cuz like for a year we got like all the drawbacks and like now it's finally shifting to a point where you can get the advantages. And I was lucky because I hit platinum to start off, so I like hit the highest points, so I was like already advantaged in that sense. But I think it was uh, the cycle system's been really bad for um the current year to get some people on board at gold level because they have to build from the ground up as they had last year, but their levels last less long, so they get like the drawbacks of the new system and of the old system at the same time, which means that this year has been really rough. And I know like a lot of um, people that would be pro are not sure if they want to continue. And uh, I I think that's part of the the reason as well that, you know, Wizards wants to have that uh, discussion with um, the free of us and with the player community in that sense is they want to figure out a way to uh, improve, you, you know, like understand how people from different regions feel and make sure that uh, the, you know, this communication beforehand because it's a lot harder to change something once it's been announced and budgeted.
2: Mm-mm. Brian, I, I imagine I, at your stage as well, you you would jump
0: jump on board with commentating it if given the opportunity. Yeah, for a play.
1: I mean, if, if given the opportunity, I think I would probably do it. Um, I I feel similarly about my skill set to Eduardo um, the actual in the moment decision-making I can waver sometimes, but I'm really good at analyzing why you reach those decision trees and, you know, optimal outcomes, potential outcomes. I do think it's something that probably suits me. And also I don't play that much magic now, so I don't have the same kind of, you know, pressure on me as far as maintaining a pro club or my, my magic experience is mostly magic online at this point. The, uh, the, the pro players club does not offer me anything at this point. Um, I I love magic. I love pro tours. I love playing the grind and trying to eke out um, meager living doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I do better making content. And I think a lot of people feel similarly and had their lifestyles not already been shaped around the grind and the attendance at every pro tour and going to a bunch of GPs, they might be in the same boat as I am. Um, Because there's, there's issues with, with pro magic right now. And, you know, that's why I'm really excited to see them engage people like Eduardo to have a chance to work on these issues. And if things change, maybe my position will
2: change as well, but just as it stands now, there's not a lot of incentive for me to pursue uh, a player's club level. All right um i was well we're, we're gonna go go around with that but while i have brian on
0: uh if you can stay on for, for the rest of the show i just want to jump straight in uh, before we get into the pro Tour consulting more the, the whole hall of fame tomorrow's the deadline the order has already submitted his his uh his ballot in alphabetical order What a nice man and even got a got a thanks as a reply for doing so so, um, and I want to shout out Edward here because his, his, um, his research has impacted who, who I'm, I'm going to put on my ballot as well. And According to his Twitter, the email he sent had Ikeda, Tsuyoshi Ikeda, Seth Matfield, Brad Nelson, Chris Pakula, and Lee Shi Tian. And Pakula uh, is actually someone I'm also, outside of reading, I had to ask Brian, I had to ask some of my older generation people that I really regard. Um, BDM and Mike Flores. Um, and what what convinced you? Because of course he's the he's the one that somehow, if you don't vote for him, you got a bunch of people why or your ballot is crap. You know you shouldn't be allowed, Like it doesn't matter because you're not Chris McCoola. But you came around. You came around. You wanted some some concrete thing that he did. Like what what did he actually do outside of like hey being against uh, cheating? So really uh, interested in, in what really swayed you ultimately.
4: Right, sure. And uh, I'm, I'm more happy to talk specifically, I guess, about Pekula because for me, uh, Lee and Seth are like world-class players that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and Ikeda and Brad are people that I support this year in that sense. Pekula is a different case. Uh, and one thing you have to understand, and, and this is kind of... This, this is going to be a little longer, but like the setup is I'm coming from outside uh, and I see everybody like Everybody, unfortunately, a large or at least a very vocal portion of Pekula supporters are unfortunately that. They're extremely vocal. They're very uh, they're unwavering and they just say, you have to vote for Pekula or I don't know, cats are going to die. Something horrible. Um, and that rebukes me automatically. And I think it uh, stops a lot of people uh, because it's very zealous. Um, and I come from a culture where my, my parents, were, you know, are Im- immigrants in that sense. And they fled, like, my grandparents fled the Red Army. My mom was under Franco in Spain. Uh, they went to Latin America, where a bunch of other stuff went down. And, like, the thing is, like, my family is more than tired of, like, uh, that situation. Like, vote for this person. Like, where, I, I mean, where I come from, like, vote for this person is super dangerous. Like, it's seen as, like, an error. Like, to, to take a stance like that without trying to justify, without trying to research. So, like, that was, like, ingrained. So, at the same time, the thing is, I talked, like, I, I had a chance to talk a little, a little bit with Chris, and he's somebody who's very mild manner, right? Like, the, the supporters are one thing. But Chris shouldn't be punished because his supporters are overzealous. I think that's, that is wrong. Like, fundamentally, you shouldn't punish someone for the actions of somebody, that somebody else is taking in their name. So, I took the time, and I was like, I have the same concern that a lot of people have, which is what did he actually do? Because I just hear he like went against G. And I mean, that's cool but like um, I have other stances, but that doesn't necessarily mean I should have a lifetime award achievement uh, in that lifetime award in that sense that the hall of fame is. So I looked it up and I, I just asked the question publicly, like, can somebody concretely tell me? And I got a lot of great responses. I got people that obviously tell me I should vote for him or whatever, but again, ignore those people. But I had a few replies um, about specific things that uh, Picula had done. Like, for example, his team had, him and his team had specifically talked to judges and gotten people disqualified for cheating at different tournaments. Like, they actively went out and located and got rid of cheaters. Uh, He was one of the people behind the limited deck registration sheet, as far as I could tell. you know and they fundamentally changed the culture they 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 shifted the needle in that sense because they were outspoken like like we're talking like the way to think about this is like they were protesters against a broken system with corruption so like like the protest the act of protesting was already in and of itself like very powerful um, and they were actually protesting. like at, As far as I could tell, at tournaments, they were like screaming, like, take them down, take these people down, this can't stand anymore. But I think the thing that cemented it for me was that Chris... I, somebody linked me to a very, very old internet post, like 1997.
2: Like, um, and there was a very young Kakula that posted there, and it was very aggro, like very unspoken. But... Combined
4: with the rest of the stories I got, plus seeing the stance that uh, Pikula had taken there in 1997, I could tell that the stance and attitude that Picula had, plus the actions I had heard, corresponded to the same person. Like I could conceive why the, how this person in 1997 became that person down the line in 98 to 2001, 2002, that helped clean up the game immensely. Um, and then that's what convinced me. It was the fact that I got that he led, he wasn't just the only leader, but he led a group of people to protest this, like actively protest at tournaments. Like that, like it, it, it's inconceivable today because it doesn't make sense, right? Like like I started in 2002. I haven't seen anything akin to a protest at a tournament. Like it, it just hasn't happened. Nobody's been like, people have been annoyed, but nobody's been like out in arms, like take this person down. It, it just doesn't make sense. And then when I think about it, I'm like, What, like, I never would have joined the game if that was how it was. Like, it would not have interested me. Like, what's the point? And I think that's, like, why I fundamentally voted for him, is I I realized the process. But the process was super important because his results, while good, um, they're not, like, the same caliber as other people uh, in the Hall of Fame. And for a player, results are just super important. Uh, and that's reality. That's why a lot of pro players don't vote for Picula, It's because um, it's not that they're like, against integrity or something. It's because uh, they feel like the, minute, the results that Picula has exhibited are just below the threshold of what you require. But in my view, um, a lot of the pro players in the Hall of Fame or that we have today would not be in the game if it wasn't for his actions. And that's why I ultimately ended up voting for him was because I got to see the process.
0: I don't know, would it be fair to say that, uh, I don't know about you though, but would you have voted for him if his results were poorer than they are currently?
4: Okay, so he has free Pro Tour top 8s and I believe, uh, I might be wrong on his medium, was it something like 55? It was really high. No, it wasn't that high. Median, fifty-five, uh, like his free year median I think was 55. But that was like when Pro Tours were newer so like i i don't put like an x2 multiplier but like i put an x 1.5 or something because um pro Tours back then i think had 200 ish people they jumped quickly to three and four but like they were less people so the thing is like modern pro tour he may not so like if you had one less top eight like it becomes to the point where probably no because the results are just not at of the caliber i think when you have free portrait top eights and you were like near the top or one of the best of your era, um, then for me, it's, it's like the line, right? Like three and four are like the line and you start thinking about other stuff. I think two and below, you have to be like beyond exceptional. Uh, someone like... I think Shouta had one or two. Like when he got inducted, it was like nuts. Because, but like he got like two more since or something. Uh, Owen also didn't have that many for like how good he was. Like and th- and this stuff got rectified. Well, I here's the thing though. My belief is that if Chris got into the Hall of Fame and came back on the pro tour, I don't think he would be the caliber of player that would be able to get a top eight beyond say a good active. Uh, player nowadays. And I don't mean this as a knock against him, because we're voting on his resume. But then because I consider that as a player, um, I basically go, like, if there was one less top eight, I maybe wouldn't have voted for him. But I think with free, I go, okay, free is, like, where I start looking at somebody and go, okay, what else was there? And I think the, the package works. He was dominant in his era. He wasn't, like, top, 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 like, Finkel or Kai was. Were but he
2: still, he still was good, no question about it.
0: Brian, Brian, you were you were very vocal with me when I asked your opinion. <laughs> Is there, um, what's your what's your perspective on, on pakula Like, he's a lock for you. One of your few locks on the ballot if you had a if you had a vote. Yeah, I just
1: I have issues. I mean, we talked about this last year. I remember being on the show and talking about it. I have issues with the Hall of Fame conceptually. I think the barrier to entry is too low. I think it's a hall of great players as it stands right now, not taking anything away from their accomplishments. They should all be extremely proud. They're all far better magic players than I will ever be. But a Hall of Fame feels like something different to me. And when we did this a year ago, my Hall of Fame would have had two people kai and john now i would have three people kai john and pv that's where my hall of fame sits i realize that's different from the hall of fame we are currently faced with but to me the people who are crossing the threshold of quote-unquote famous and i i understand that's not exactly what the hall of fame is about But to me, it should be. I I don't want people who are in the heyday of their careers making it into the Hall of Fame. That's what Owen felt like. That's what Seth feels like. And I don't think that's what the Hall of Fame is for. It's kind of like this weirdo super qualification thing that like now you never have to worry about falling off again. and, And that's what's being positioned for. So step one is I would like to see the guaranteed invites removed. I think you should be granted one invite a year to use at the pro tour of your choosing. And that's a awesome way to pay respect to the people who are in the hall of fame. And then there should probably be like a hall of fame event, probably at induction weekend where it's a hall of fame only tournament and you can cover that. And it's awesome and exciting. And the chance to see all these people, you know, you put off a hundred thousand dollars and that's high enough EV where people are interested. And I understand I'm playing with fictional money right now that I get to throw around with no consequence. So mm-hmm. You know that has its own set of problems but this is all a long-winded way of saying if i were voting on the hall of fame i would vote for two people this year one would be pakula for I, i think eduardo did an excellent job of explaining exactly why he belongs in i mean he is a fundamental difference maker in the history of the pro tour, he's a figure, he's the meddling mage, he is responsible for the game being in the state it's in today and has certainly earned respect for that. And then my second vote is a vote surely rooted in bias, but part of the thing about bias is that an element of bias is an access to information, right? So our bias isn't only shaped by what we want to happen, it's also shaped by what we have access to. And in some cases, that access gives us things that other people don't get to see. And the second person on my ballot would be Jerry. Now, obviously, again, I get the problems with me saying that because we we work together, we have a relationship, we're good friends. But when you're talking about famous and when you're talking about what you've done for the game, Jerry has been producing content for 11 years. He's raised thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for charity. By the way, the, his last charity auction just wrapped up three days ago, raised like $3,000 for, uh, for, for suicide prevention. He's raised tons of money for Planned Parenthood. I forget what his second auction was for, but he, he's raised tens and thousands of dollars in the name of magic, gotten mainstream media coverage for his efforts on behalf of Planned Parenthood. You know, he was featured on Kotaku and Other media outlets and is just generally painting magic in the super favorable light. And then I see the way he interacts with people at tournaments. And this is what you want out of your Hall of Fame members. He's an ambassador for magic and he's a face of magic. And he has done more to paint magic in a good light and to use magic for good than anyone currently playing on the Pro Tour, to my knowledge. Granted, like I said, I have access to some information that people don't see, and I'm sure there's other players who I don't have access to what they're doing on behalf of Magic and what they're doing to improve the game. I get that. But just based on what, what I've seen, what I've heard, those are my two choices. They cross that threshold of fame. They've contributed enough to the game over a long enough period of time that I think that's who belongs in. And you know that's not to take anything away from from Lee from Seth from um, Mark Herberholz all completely defensible choices that I think everyone can make and you know the japanese players ken yukihiro or Akeda, I, I don't know enough about them but again to me there's this threshold of fame right so kai was a foreign player pv a foreign player they're so great you know about them they've reached that threshold of fame and the fact that i um am not local to their community and don't have the same level of access they've transcended that because they are that good and that's part of my argument for the hall of fame being much smaller than it is i I mean there's certainly japanese players who i would they were right on my threshold of that three-person hall of fame there's a bunch of japanese players sitting in the fourth fifth sixth slots ready to enter they've overcome that kind of western bias to magic coverage that i think does exist i mean it's it's indisputable that coverage is focused around english-speaking players and there's way more tournaments in 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 english-speaking countries so that also factors into everything not denying that Um, but i think that's transcendable and i (laughs) i I don't know. I mean, this is all move. I don't have a vote, right? So this is just me freestyling and, and saying what I want to say. And there's a lot less stakes uh, in terms of me putting forth this argument because it doesn't actually determine any outcomes. Just how I feel people are welcome to disagree with it.
2: I,
0: it was a Reddit, Reddit thread about, uh, because of all the drama on Twitter. So when I said, uh, <laughs> he,
2: uh, talking about, uh, one specific candidate, I think, uh, was more, okay, it was
0: against, uh, about Pecula, and one guy wrote, he's the only candidate who's come out of this week not looking terrible. <laughs> and I put, I replied, Jerry? And, and someone's like, fair enough. <laughs> I think Jerry's been able to steer away from, from from all the controversy and all the drama.
1: There, There is a problem with what's going on right now. There's a, a marked problem. This looks horrible. And when you're not... So whether I'm actively engaged with Pro Magic right now, I still have ties to it. And I, I know the stories. I, I know the backstories. I know all the stuff that's going on. To me, I get what's happening here. But if I didn't have that level of knowledge, that perception, that inside information, how awful does this look to someone who's like a PPTQ player trying to make their first Pro Tour? I mean, think of the impression they're getting from this whole situation and and this isn't saying anyone's take is wrong or there's not merit into trying to clean up the game but just the the vitriol and the general tone and the approach to how things have been done this season have been dangerous and it's not been a good look for magic over the past few weeks i think that's that's pretty clear, regardless of what side of any argument you fall on, you have to admit
2: this is not a good look for Magic right now. And, Order, you fully wholeheartedly agree. Yeah,
4: I mean, Brian's hit on the nose, as have a lot of people. Um, essentially, and uh, just to be clear, uh, there's a number of uh, pro players that, that they get in touch with me and, and share that feeling, right? That this is just. Not okay for the game. It's not okay for their friends either, because, um, like for example, Lee had to to write that piece defending himself. And the thing was, the main reason, one of the main reasons he did that is because his friends are getting attacked. I know Lee; he would not have written that if it was just him. He wouldn't have bothered. But the fact that was that somebody that cared about him tried to defend him and got attacked, and that was like enough to, to trigger. Him. And and that piece went down well, which. I was very happy with. I uh that was actually a a nice positive. But and I and I think that the community has like not pro-community, but like the overall community has gotten to the point uh where Brian is, which is this is a terrible look for the game. It looks awful. Uh like unless I mean it might be funny from a soap opera perspective until you realize that like actual people are behind this. And as far as I'm concerned, there's kind of this vibe of, I've seen this happen in online communities where I've done work and it feels to me like online harassment. It's not from an individual in particular, just to be clear. I don't think that anyone has targeted someone enough for me to say that it was online harassment, but I think that the whole like batch ends up being that way. Um, And I know that some people have had
2: a hard time with this. Um, And I I think that needs to fundamentally change Uh, because I know that
4: there's a, for me, there's a difference between people that are airing their disagreements with certain players now uh, because they want to harm them or because they want to find a solution to a problem that they were not able to find by other means. And those are two different groups. Group one is something that needs to be combated. It's just not okay, like at all. to to try to use, to try to assassinate someone's character uh, because you dislike. But point two is a a much more interesting one, which is, and I've gotten that from many people, which is we don't feel that the system was able to solve the problem that we had with this player. Um, It may be a long-term perceived issue. It may be a specific ruling. Um, I put a lot more credit in long-term issues because... One game of magic could go one way or another. Who knows what happens a lot of the time? It's really hard to, to say, well, in this scenario, this player did this. And like, well, there's no point in really arguing because you won't really know the truth. Like, the idea is like a com- combination of things leads to this problem. And uh, my personal view and what I would, I, I guess, I don't know how much in the consultant side of things this will happen, but it's probably something I will bring up if there is an opportunity which is looking at how we deal with things that are relatively close to um, not, not cheating, but have tangible associations or can transcend into it too easily. And for me, those, like, those two things that I would like to look into are uh, slow play and angle shooting. Uh, slow play specifically because it's way too close to stalling and intent is like, literally the only thing you can do to separate those two. So I want to see how – I want to recheck how we deal with slow play and ask that question and ask how can we involve the conversation around slow play around – for someone that is egregiously slow over a number of matches, like how do you look into that? And the second thing for me on angle shooting is do we really want to accept as a community like this kind of thing? Like for me, it's stuff like – because you can't blame the player, right? Like, uh, like, for me, something that comes into my mind is, like, pivy Needle on Borborek. Like, that was... Like, I would never blame the player that's, that tries to pull that off. But we as a community should not accept that that is the norm or okay in general. Because it leads to too many situations where people might cross into something else. And it makes it much harder to try to, to catch out people. And it fosters an environment where you're trying to win at all costs... Rather than enjoying the game that you're sitting down to play, and and I think these two things have to evolve. Um, and it's because I'm also a big believer: if a system is broken, you shouldn't just try to short-term solution your way around it. Uh, you should try to fix the root problem and cause, because that's the only way that's, that that problem stops working. And right now, for example, there's too much incentive to sort of air this dirty laundry during Hall of Fame season, because it's the same as if you were looking for sort of justice or um something to happen here so like the people that wanted for not good reasons but like reasons that are personal to them and important to them and they value and for bad reasons you know try to assassinate someone's character like the strategy is the same so you can't tell one from the other and and you can't discredit people and our goal isn't to discredit people but it's to protect the people that are being targeted by stories that honestly like are probably in a lot of cases just not true, unfortunately. Some are and because we can't separate truth from um, fiction,
2: like it creates an environment where you just distrust everyone and that's good for no one down the line. Man. Eduardo, man, it, it just makes me happy. Happier uh, by, by, by the word that, that you're one of the chosen consultants. Um, you had, uh, Andy, you want to jump in?
3: I don't have too much interesting to say other than like I feel the same way. Like the first thing I was thinking when you started bringing up the Hall of Fame talk is like a bad look and then everyone said this is a bad look and that's exactly how I felt about it. Like when it all started I was like ooh some juicy Twitter drama this will be exciting and then now I I just legitimately get upset when I open Twitter and see all this and I just close Twitter. I just I don't want to look at all this all these players that I uh I I love like and they are some of the reasons that I, I love to play this game. It's like, these are the players you look up to, just like getting in these really, really petty arguments and these petty things, and then they move the goalposts when, like, someone calls them out on them calling someone else out, and then they change the narrative to be like, well, actually, this is what I really am worried about. And it's just, it looks so bad, and it, I really can't wait for uh, the day after tomorrow when people hopefully stop talking about it.
2: Um, on, on, on the topic of slow play, um, let me pull this up. Edward, you, you had commented,
0: uh, you had tweeted back at this, so, so definitely want you on here to talk about it. Oh, yeah, here we go. So, MTG underscore dash. Posted up a, a nice little table of stats, and uh, in the picture, I don't, Brian, I don't know if you've seen this, he, he highlights in yellow, uh, Gabriel Nassif um, with percentage of matches that timed out 4.3%, Matches that timed out win percentage, 93.8%. So he's won basically almost all of the games that go to timeout. But there's a lot of caveats, so, so people jumping in quick conclusions. Should, should go check the post because uh, the author of this post himself says, like, maybe it's because you know, Gabe plays slow decks that, that generally win game one. And, and, of course, if he's the better player, he's, he's more likely to win that, especially if it's a deck that's better positioned to take down game one. So it does not necessarily mean that, that he's a, a stalling cheater. So there's a lot of caveats that, that the author of this post goes into. So I would recommend checking that out.
1: KYT, uh, does, does the author say where the data comes from? Because that, that was the first thing that jumps to my mind. Where are they getting these numbers from?
4: Uh, if I, if I can interject, I don't know necessarily where he might, but, uh, MGG yellow project is usually like when, like when I was looking at like, say win rates for uh, hall of fame votes, that's where I went. Uh, the, the, I mean, the data is not a hundred percent perfect on there, especially when I looked at EK. There were like 10 pro tours that mysteriously disappeared, which is a large number. I don't know what happened there. But a lot of the data from 2000 plus is relatively accurate. So you can just look on there. He just pulls the stats. It's, it's like, I, I, I've been very impressed by the, the work there, actually. Like between, I wish I remembered his name now. Please look him up. Ten um, it. Uh, sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up and mention. But uh, yeah, him and uh, Sene1, they both like have helped a lot in terms of that uh, stats and community approach. But he uh, just pulls all the stats, so people can just control F and search like. But one, zero, do those zero,
1: stats one. keep track of the, the game count in matches you've won?
4: Yeah, yeah, like, because that has
1: him winning one zero.
4: Yeah, because they do that on the stand, like on the results page for GPS. Like if someone oh, okay. wins one zero, like okay. the judges actually insert one zero, so like that goes online, and if you're data pulling, that that'll get data pulled too. It, it should at least. Yep. So he does mention
0: mtgeloproject.net. Um, not, not, not. For me, it wasn't a surprise seeing to see because of his reputation as someone that's ultra slow. And there's even him on stream, like or videos where he loses on time. So he's notoriously slow. Uh, but, but, Eduardo, you, you tweeted back and, um, yeah, you mentioned it. You also mentioned just before, uh, this question was, was, uh, this topic was, you might look at, uh, different aspects of slope and how, how to improve
4: that. So what does this data, what did it tell you? All right. So, I mean, that data for me is not, uh, that vitally, it's nice, but it's not that vitally interesting because the number of matches where this happens is just a cyclical. low. Like, Nasif is a statistical, sorry, the, the statistical anomaly where you get the highest amount of results and it's still low. So, uh, plus, Nassif notoriously likes playing control-style decks. So, like, it makes sense. He plays slowly and he likes to play decks that take a long time. So, of course, that happens. Um, but the kind of... I think Nasif is a good example because there was something that came up in a... I, I can't remember what match. GP Nationals or Pro Tour match? Between Nasif and, I think, Pierre Dajon. I'm not 100% on the opponent. But the, the clock was winding down and they had like seven or ten minutes, and Nasif
2: bolligated out to four. Now the thing is Nasif is a notoriously slow player. But because he's bolligated to four, there's an argument if he wasn't who he was that you could accuse that player of stalling.
4: And that to me, like is where all these problems come from. Is the fact is Nassif was not called out on stalling because he's a notoriously slow player. And and I think that's fair, right? Like, he is actually just playing slowly. He happens to mulligan to four, but it looks super bad. Like, as far as I'm concerned, like, you could not be able to tell the difference between him trying... Like, if he did, like, that's horrible. But, like, there would be no way for you to tell. And I think that's where we need to be better at the slow play aspect. Like, and... I, I don't want to form my mind too much about this and everything you're hearing here is speculative at this point because maybe I can't change the needle on this. All, all I'm going to have is discussions and ask the question there and see how that system can be changed. It might be after like a couple of months, I my conclusion is okay, well, we are where we are and there's a reason for that. But one thing I wanted to figure out was if there's a way, because for me, if somebody is taking on average 65-70% of the clock in their matches compared to their opponents, um, and, and there's no rationale to, like, the format isn't, like, blistering fast, and then they just decide to play the one complicated deck of the format.
2: Um, question, well, this player is probably getting an advantage because they're just taking more time. Or, like, if I play chess and I
4: have a 35-minute clock and my opponent has a 20-minute one, like, I have an advantage. Like, that's just a clear-cut advantage. But the assumption of slow play is that it's unintentional. And I believe that most of these players that are playing slowly are doing so unintentionally. They just like to think and they go multi-levels deep. I know that Deceit goes really deep in his thought process. Uh, and there's a time and a place for that. But not every match in Magic is that time and place. And there's a question for me. Well, for example, a penalty for Mark Card's pattern when it's assumed to be innocent, like... Uh, I got one at the Pro Tour because after checking the sleeves with my judge at the start of the day, they rechecked and said that my sideboard was marked. Uh, PSA, shuffle your sideboard in between rounds. I forgot that, but that's advice I got given 15 years ago and for that tournament I was stressed out and forgot about it. But, uh, and I got uh, game loss because the idea is that they want to make sure that you couldn't have possibly gained any advantage with marked cards pattern. Um, and I think that that philosophy, I'm wondering as a discussion, should that philosophy extend to slow play? Should it be there that, well, if this player is taking 65 to 70% of their matches, the thing is they're probably getting an advantage, even if it's unintentional. So what's the penalty to make them realize this is not acceptable? And maybe that answer is a game loss. You get to say to them, well, look, because you've taken this much time, you have unfair, like you've been given an advantage. So we have to rectify the situation for the integrity of the tournament. And that might be a game loss. It could be a game loss between rounds because you observed this player for two rounds and you're like, you've played slowly both rounds consistently. Um, but I don't know what the answer is because your previous biases are going to come into play, right? Because you're like, well, this player's slow. And yeah, and I, I, there's way more into this topic. I think PV did an excellent job uh, framing the basis of the topic where uh, a lot of players, I, like top players that are not like LSV or Shadow that play Lightning fast all the time uh, or Owen will like be super fast on like the obvious stuff like land land or elf will be like five seconds but then like on a super complicated turn they like they might go into the type i know mike sigris does this i know i do this myself um and i know that i'll never a lot of players do this right like the situation's complicated you want to take time but when we're trying you know and i play storm in legacy right like there might be a turn where i take four minutes and then say go which is awful but i've like because i've tanked on literally what could my opponent have what do i do how do i like Do I go for a draw spell? Like how do I float my mana? Like what am I trying to play around? But like that thought process carries over to future turns. It's not like it's deleted. So like my next turn should be fast, right? And how and and how do you do this is very difficult because you're asking then judge staff to go, well, I can't look at just a single turn, I have to look at a match. And that's why you have to look at the conversation for me overall is I think that
2: playing slowly, consistently is damaging the integrity of a tournament. But how do you actually check for that? And that's a very difficult question to answer.
0: Uh, yeah, some people would, would, would argue that it's also really bad to show these
2: uh, slow playing on stream and that uh, it's boring to watch some of these players. Brendan, do you have any solutions that come to mind?
1: <laughs> play the game digitally? <laughs> I mean, look, if there was a functional way to play Magic digitally, this conversation goes away. And it's answered for us. Um, I was hoping Arena would be that. I don't feel that way currently. Maybe things will change over time. I'm still hopeful. Um, I don't know. Is that direction you want to take, Magic? There's always going to be these gray areas as long as we're playing with physical cards because there's things you just can't... you, You can't enforce the passing of priorities chess clock type situation it doesn't work that way so you need more judge staff or you need clearer policies or time limits like you know you can you can call for the you can call for clock and poker you know what i mean like you only have so long to make a decision you can only take for so long but that requires enforcement and again more judge staff so so there's no clean solution to this i i get the problems with it I get the problems with habitually slow players of which I probably would include myself in. I, Like Eduardo said, if I have a complicated turn, I will go into the tank for as long as it takes for me to figure out everything I want to figure out about that turn until I am asked to make a, a play. And then I will make my play. Now that never changes regardless of the situation with the clock. I'm never altering how long I'm taking for a decision based on how much time is left in the round. But if I need the time and I can do so with only getting a, You need to make a decision. Okay, I'm willing to take that much time if I feel it necessary. Is that wrong? Well, I I mean, over time, I am probably gaining an advantage by taking more time to make my decisions. That's not my purpose. My purpose is in making the optimal play. But there's no way to kind of take that away from me without more clearly defined rules, and it kind of stinks. Like it's it's not the ideal way to proceed with the game. So my cleanest solution is just a digital platform. I don't know that we'll ever see that. Um, and I think it takes away some of the charm of the game, too. I mean, there's, there's value in actually playing with your cards and sitting down with an iPad across from your opponent doesn't have the same type of feel to it. And that stinks. I, I, I like physical magic cards. They're cool. So I don't know where this is going to end. Um, but I agree that there, there has to be some discussion of it at least some kind of i mean especially when you talk about players who are like nasif like seth is another person who people are concerned about his pace of play they're at every pro tour they're in the feature match area constantly i mean it's it's not like these players don't play the vast majority of their matches under the watchful eye of a judge and despite that they haven't accumulated enough slow play warnings for it to you know, raised to a level of suspension or anything like that. They, there, there just hasn't been any consequence. So, the assumption, and I think correctly so, is that they're still opera- operating within the rules, despite the fact that they are taking more clock than their opponents. And they're probably benefiting from it. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you fix that.
2: Yeah. And, and I, I think the digital side is
4: super interesting, by the way. And uh, I think KYT will, I, I don't know if you're going to continue on that, but like, that's another discussion that I think is really fascinating. Uh, but I wanted to say like on the the fact that you were taking like your time on a turn, it's about that holistic approach, right? Because that's fundamentally the only way you can fix the problem, so to speak, is it's not just one turn. Because when you look at the situation from one turn, you you start realizing, well, a turn of magic. I could have seen this at any time. I don't necessarily have all the info. Like, how complicated is this actual turn? And how have they been playing the rest of the time? Because if you take like long on that turn, but then the next three are super. Like, if you're playing standard and the next three are very fast, because you figured out everything like two moves in advance. Then, like for me, you weren't playing slowly. If you take like three minutes on one turn, but then taking fifteen seconds on the others because you were, su- because you've done that thought process then like holistically for me, that block of time is like, okay, well, they just jammed all their thinking into one and then executed all the actions in a row. And PV's article highlights that is it's okay that somebody takes their time on the decision. What's not okay is that it's consistent, persistent, and then you're doing this all the time. This, I mean, this is why we're not pile shuffling more than once. I, at uh, Providence for the Grand Prix, I did not see people pile shuffle very often. It was actually a rarity now the community has gone away from this. They realize that like, it's just not something good for the game. Uh, and I think there is a willingness to evolve. But it's a very difficult topic, and you're right. As long as you're not digital, how do you actually solve the problem? And, and I don't think the solution is to suspend, but it's to tell these people, well, you're gaining an advantage. So we have to say that you are, and you're not intentional. But because you have gained an advantage, we need to negate that. And you can't negate that with a warning. And um, I mean, I had a, I faced a friend in the final of UK nationals in 2011, and he got a game loss for slow play in an untimed finals, but it was merited. There's no question where it was a real, it was just that the judge finally went, this is too much. It needs, this needs to stop now you've played slowly all match. You need to get like an actual game loss. And it's getting that conversation where it's super hard to try to evolve into that direction because it's a very hard call to make as a judge, because you're basically saying, based on what I saw from the game from just a time perspective, nothing's been wrong, but you've taken too long, so I have to award the game to your opponent.
2: And that can, be a, that can be a big difference maker, and that's a really hard conversation. Man. I'm, I'm trying to think, like, uh, I wonder, as someone who used to play chess, if it, but I, I do see so
0: many, once I even think it's possible, I see too many problems with it. Logistically, like who's bringing the clock? Like are they stopping the clock? Let, let me give, the you, cleanest, let me give you the cleanest. Let me give you the cleanest
1: suggestion I have, KYT. And this, this still sucks. Outside of digital. Outside, of digital, outside of digital. This still sucks, but this is this is the cleanest thing I've ever come up with of all the times I've thought of this. You <laughs> you have a set number of seconds to make an in-game action, and you can never exceed that number of seconds. An in-game action defined as playing a spell, making an attack, activating an ability. Uh, I I wouldn't count tapping mana as an in-game action. You could just tap and untap, you know, one land at a time. But you say you only have, I don't know what the correct number is. I'd have to play games and get a feel for if there is actually a correct number. You say you only have 15 seconds you can take before taking an in-game action. And is that abusable? Sure. But that's easier to spot abuse of, right? If I say you have 15 seconds between every action and then you, pay one mana, tap your creature with my IC manipulator, wait 15 seconds, pay one mana, do that. You know what I mean? it's, It's much easier to see where you're purposely stretching to that 15 second threshold. Whereas the kind of complete undefined, quote unquote, slow play that we have now is, it's just almost meaningless. It's completely at discretion. So if you had this hard threshold for time for an action, it does something. Now it would take loads of playtesting that I have not done to see if this is actually feasible, but this is the only thing I've come close to being like, okay, maybe that's clean enough to work. But I, if you told me there are 10 million flaws with it, I wouldn't be surprised.
4: Yeah. And one of the flaws I can already think of is an eternal format. There, there are some like decks that the second they take one action, they're locked into a turn. And I, I, play Storm, I played Storm and Legacy. The second I play a Dark Ritual, that's it. That turn is going one direction. And if I miscounted or screwed up, I'm dead. Like it's over. Like, and and that's the the problem. I I I don't think that's fundamentally feasible.
1: Well, you know, Um, it's it's a new paradigm under which to play the game, though, right? Like, it's like those decks. Their difficulty ramps up tremendously. Like, I I know you're a Hearthstone player. True. The the equation is APM priest, right? Where like you know what I mean? You're you're physically limited to completing the action.
4: Right, right. But in a game of Hearthstone, the, the key is you're thinking all of this in advance, right? Like, because your, your combos are, most of the combo decks in Hearthstone are very control. They're mostly control combo. They're right. really control decks that have a combo finish. They're, pure combo is usually something that the devs for Hearthstone avoid hard and nerf very quickly. So they, it's usually control combo. And you're playing a control game. So most of the time when you're playing those games, you're taking a long time every turn. But you're always thinking of your combo. You're always thinking what's the lethal damage. And then the second you win, it's actually very quick. So, and you still get that, that problem, right? So, but, but the difference with Hearthstone is your opponent can't, also can't interrupt what you do. right? And that's a really key difference. Because when you're trying to think of, like, what could my opponent do in this exact spot, and you think there's five or six different moments they can interrupt you, that's where those long terms come from. You know, if your opponent's tapped out and stuff, like, okay, maybe it's a little easier, but yeah. And um yeah and that's that's the thing like uh how do i mean and i and i think that one of the other conversations is you have to accept that some matches will naturally go to time because you can't expect everybody to play fast and you know what if both players played slow on a game but it was like that one match and they both played slow like i'm i'm okay with it if both are doing this like if there's a reciprocity is the main thing and um yeah that's the main thing for me is like did the aggro Player like forever to start with, but then like the control players taking a little longer when they're trying to establish control. Like, does it make sense in the flow of the game? And then like one, but like once you're in a state of like, you know what's going on? Is are things moving quickly? Like that's that's where. But you're right. There's no hard and fast rule. It is very subjective. Um, but then again, uh, actually, okay, I'm not a big sports buff. But does somebody, uh do one of you free have an example from sports? Where a, ju- a judge or a referee has to make a subjective call, it's um, like the
3: charge rule in basketball.
4: It
1: happens every single play Any with football. Ball. Holding Any calls ball. in football are completely subjective all the time, and it it literally every single play of a football game you could call holding. It's right. just when it crosses over a certain threshold that they actually enforce it. And I'm talking American football, obviously. Yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, I get
4: it. um, yeah. Well, I mean, soccer also famously sure diving. Matter, so. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, and. Right, so there are a lot of subjective calls, so maybe we have to accept this is a gray area, this is subjective, so okay, that's what it is. And if a judge gives a game loss, maybe it needs to be conferred because they need to like, justify it with a colleague. Maybe something like that has to happen.
1: But, the problem is, though, every single game is watched in that situation, right? Like there is a right. referee observing the contest, and we have yeah. unwatched games in Magic, and that's where... Right. yeah. yeah. And my actually... argument might
4: be that it's not a comp rel thing. Maybe at comp rel, the punishment for slow play is different than at pro rel. At pro Rel, you might say, you're not allowed to take this time because it's an unfair advantage. At CompRel, we understand you're competitive, but you may not be as familiar with your deck. You might be trying to get to the next level. And we're going to accept that there is a learning curve. So we're not going, so, so so play will be enforced kind of as it is today. Like, it has to be a little more egregious. But maybe at Pro Rel, we're like, your professionals behave like it. And we will enforce penalties in a way that assumes that you are professional players that care about the game. I don't know if that's the right answer, but it's a possible outcome, right? Like maybe we're harsher on slow play at pro realm. And that might have enough of an effect because once you habituate that, it goes down, right? Because those are the matches that get seen the most and that
2: cascades back down. I, I'm hoping. I don't know. It's, it's a rough uh, subject. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of food for thought. Um,
0: yeah, like in, and Annie's referring to, yeah, or. Well, he makes me think of the, the NBA Finals that happened where there was a, a debatable charging call that decided game one, and you know, after a while, being angry, they, they have to accept whatever rule and and, uh, and LeBron James has accepted rules that, that have gone either for him or against him um, due to subjectivity. But James brings a, a good point as well. Like a lot of these games are not only ref by one person, but multiple refs. So,
2: yeah. Tough to see, and I don't see it. I really don't see it going digital, just because people just like to
0: to hold their cards. They they, they like to choose their deck box and stuff like that, and we we like to have these GPS. To I don't know. Everyone likes their dice and, and everything, and and um, I, I'm also thinking, although it's not a direct comparison of how certain poker casinos try to port over digital board, uh, digital cards and, and dealers and ended up like the the player base ended up dying and they had to scrap it and bring back the real dealers that happened actually in, uh, the, the casino Montreal. Actually, they never had real dealers, but they had to scrap it and find like people actually like holding real cards despite living in the digital age. So despite the, the uh, increase in popularity of, of all these other digital games, I just don't. Yeah. I just see the, uh, the pluses on, on paper magic, uh, too much and and so i'm I'm at a loss i'm at a loss at how you could and with the s- stats that these guys showed like like eduardo mentioned it's not even statistical significant that you could tell if someone's really abusing it or not so there's the trouble of that i mean can't even look at the stats and say like with some certainty that this guy you know there, there's some issue with it but you can't say that oh this guy plays really really fast and and, and like like owen basically never goes to time. I've only go, gone to time once or something. Uh, absurd. So, but in order, is this like the type of feedback that, that people can give you uh, when it comes to uh, your role as the uh, pro, pro player consultant?
4: Yeah, so, so on that, uh, the key, so, so there's a few aspects to that. Um, the first thing is a key part of what Wizards wants is feedback on future systems and future announcements. Uh, and that's a part of why this exists. Now, I may not be... A, the thing is, I've gotten feedback from a lot of different people in a lot of different areas. I got somebody from South Africa talking to me about the PDQ system, somebody talking to me about the GPs. Uh, somebody was just talking about Magic Pro representation in Asia. These are very different people. But the, the key for me from this feedback is... I'll remember. So, so, yeah, we had a new cat, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, the, the, thing, the thing from my side is I don't know what issues might come up. And, I'll, and you know, I'll, I'll try to, to, to bring up what I can, uh, like what makes sense. But I want to understand what the community's thought process and vibe is at now. Because, like, even if I can't solve the problem you come to me with, right? Like, I hear what's going on it's causing you like to enjoy magic less and there's another situation that might cause you to enjoy magic more, then I can at least try to understand what your goal out of magic is and what your thought process is so that when I'm going into seeing future feedback, even though like, you may not have thought of it, my mind is this type of player will love this or this type of player will have an issue with this because of this. Like Either they don't care and that's fine or actually they will care but they can't integrate well so can we change like, just see here to suit these people. And I think that's important for me is there's a lot of things that I can't give feedback on because I don't know what's going to come up, but I just need to understand what the mentality is. Uh, So if you come to me and you explain what's concerning you, I will remember that. And then when it, as and when it comes up, assuming I'm like awake and get it right, uh, I'll try to make sure that the player type you are gets that feedback in because I want to get like a pulse on the community. Uh, and that's whether you like something. If you like something and don't want to see it change at all, you definitely should get in touch. I, I know you usually get feedback because something's wrong, but get in touch, please, because uh, if something's going well and nobody's talking about it, then like, you don't want to change something that's going well. That just never works.
0: I got a few more questions for Eduardo, but Brian has to go. So thanks, Q, so much for coming back on, Brian. And of course, anyone can find you at Brian Go. That's how I say it, Brian Go, and all your game podcasts. And definitely subscribe with your favorite podcast app, the Game Podcast. And the, the feed has the, the head game stuff as well. Anything else you would like to plug and your articles on SCG. I'm, do, I'm doing it all for you.
1: I've read so many forms of media now. You have to get them all in there. Yeah, head games, game podcasts, articles, on SCG. I think you checked all the boxes. Thank you for having me back, KYT. I'll I'll try not to stay away so long the next time. I promise.
0: Hey, it's a joy, and maybe even to have you and Eduardo on because I seems to have some great discussion here with Eduardo on um, organized play, and and I know you always super passionate about the esports world and and Eduardo as well.
2: So. Absolutely. I
0: will see you next time. Thanks, Brian.
2: Take care, everyone.
0: This was Brian Godley, my man, one of the originals of First Strike, one of the originals of a lot of podcasts that I've started with them. And what? So uh, when this was announced, I think a lot of players um, see the casual crowd, see the the or, all the pros, as just clique and stuff like that. But how? What type of person should be able to give you feedback? Like how low? Does it go? Is it the, the, the M grinder? Can he give you some input or is it more GP and pro tour?
2: Okay.
4: So um, th- this is clearly set up because they want a pro player consultant perspective. So there's definitely a focus on, as far as I can tell, competitive. That said, it cascades down like something that happens at PPTQ's FNM, even pre-releases, like can have an impact on pro play because not necessarily because of systems in place, but because of image. Um, and the thing to, re- like I started with pre-releases because for me, those were the, greater, the best formats because I had a limited budget to buy product. So I would go to a pre-release because it was the right, I could spend half a day, I could buy the product I wanted to do for that set um, and I could beat people. But the thing is, with pre-releases in some areas, you're gonna see people because pre-releases regroup like everybody from the Magic community. That's where you like get the first timers and and like, like pro tour champions in the same room, and they're both happy to be there. So pre-releases are a good example of well, if you have like I I can't like change pre-releases or or give so much feedback on them because I I mean like fundamentally, I don't think the question is gonna come up that much, but if you're in that environment uh, and say, like, the image of it is concerning you or you really like the image of it and, like, there's A and B aspects that are great that are driving you to go towards competitive play. Like, say, you started pre-releases and you saw and B and C, like, were the things that made you go to PPTQs or a GP and you're, like, having a blast. Well, that's important to know because that's the stuff that gets you into competitive play. So, if it if it's linked to competitive play and it's getting you in that direction, let me know because... Even if I don't have an influence on the system because the question doesn't come up or it's decided or it's not the team's responsibility, um, that feedback can still go through, right? Like, I might say, like, player B really enjoyed this aspect of the pre-release. They got to talk to this player and that's what happened. And uh, that got me thinking that maybe, like, you know, like, maybe there's something from there. Um, I will say though, like for me, I, I guess the pure minimum from the feedback would be like that competitive circle. So like PPT, lower than PPTQs would probably be not something I can give feedback on like back, because I don't think there's going to be uh, like if I do FNMs, like I, I don't, I don't think that's the rule there. But, um, remember that it may affect the stream or something. So I think PPTQs and and that system is roughly where you want to try to get me at. But if there's something that you've noticed at another level, like, let me know, like that. that's it, because I mean, we're going to have initial talks. And if you get to me beforehand, that's better, because once the initial talks have happened, that puts you on a process. And I don't know how that works. You get like more additional like work piled on and and like you try to see through that because that's already a big enough task.
0: And um, how did you go about, is it, is it like coverage? You had to ask the right people, you had to opt in to be one of the people selected as, as the, one of the three consultants? Uh,
4: so the process itself, I don't know how much I can share on specifically. Um, I, I guess the best thing is the, it was an application uh, that was very important. Um, and it was an application targeted at active uh, pro players. So uh, the people targeted were mostly pl- almost all exclusively Platinum. Um, there might have been players a little bit below, but, but like for sure th- that was the targeted group um, because they were looking for, for players in that, in that sphere. So yeah, there, there was an application process and they're looking for that type of player. Um, that's about as... Uh, uh, I, don't as even, can... I don't want you to get in trouble. I don't need you to go No, 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 it's fine. And I, I mean, the stuff is like, I know they want regional representation because that's important for them and they want perspective. They want, they want essentially that these three or four people or however many they get per you know session of time represent a swath of the Magic community and are able to bring a bunch of different points of view to the table. And that's critical to them. Uh, and I know like I can personally tell you what I wrote in uh, because uh, I, I, I essentially put in front uh, kind of the video game background and like designing systems and the international aspect, uh, because I know that I, those are the two keys for me. Like the fact that I've been in multiple cultures that I hang out with people from Europe, APAC, uh, North America, the fact that I moved to different countries and all that stuff. Like I know that that's important and that that was a key part of the process. And that's something key. So, like, I want to make sure that, like, it's not because you're like, I got somebody contacting me for South Africa, and I thought that was amazing because they, the challenges that they face there are so different from everybody else. Uh, and it was good to get that voice in because maybe, maybe there's nothing you can do, but maybe there's a small bone you can throw. I don't know what that bone is, but, you know, it's part of that discussion. I can say, well, this person got in touch with me. That's how their community is. Is there something we can do for, those, for, for the people in that community? And then, you know, that's it. I, I, I think it's important that magic is in, enjoyed globally. That, that to me is critical. That magic is a game that is enjoyed globally, but that things do not work in every culture. FM, for example, in England was, uh, it might have changed since, but it was not a disaster. In, it was a semi disaster in our area because Tuesday night is when people had free from work and would come and play, but Friday was pub night. Nobody wanted to come and play FM. <laughs> it, it's just reality. Nobody wanted M because they would be at the pub on Friday night. And that's a cultural thing, right? There's other cultures, for whatever reasons, other programs may not work. And it's important to bring that perspective back. I understand why FNM works in North America. Like when, when I worked here, I was like, well, we have an earlier day off and it's super easy to get to because there's stores everywhere uh, and it doesn't take an abnormal amount of time. So I'm like, okay, FNM makes sense here, but it didn't where I live. And... Um, it's not to knock on the program, right? But one size doesn't fit all, and, and Wizards is very aware of that. They, they, I mean, they are aware of that.
0: Yeah, I was always surprised at the local level, even the local face-to-face game store, to see like the weekly tournaments. like Monday and Tuesday have people, because uh, as a student, like, I didn't, as a busy student, I didn't have time to, to go and play Monday, Tuesday, but sometimes hey, people just want to let off Steam work, and Monday, Monday Modern or Tuesday Legacy is just a perfect time. For them to drop, drop by, especially since it's usually uh, well, I face to face it's just four rounds and people know when it ends and, and they're happy and they get the rounds in and they go home. So, uh, definitely can, can see that. And, uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm happy to see I, I was wary when I uh read the announcement. And John Stern, who was on the show two weeks ago, had, had mentioned you know, there's, there's a bunch of NBA that, that he had to sign, so he, he didn't know how much he had to say. So, definitely understand. Um, not being able to go into great detail, but the result of it all—you, Willie Adel, and Hugh and Jensen—being the three, I'm really happy, and not just because you're on the with the result, um, Man, I just, just really happy that that was your you three.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I yeah, Willie, I've had great respect. Uh, Huey, I don't know as much. I, I have respect for him, but uh, that's, like, I, I don't know um, him as much, so that's just, so I can't say much. But Willie, I've had a lot of uh, respect over the years. Like, I, I met him a couple of years ago, I guess, Feroz in Dublin. That was a few years, yeah, four or five years, ago. five years not years. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for what uh, Willie did uh, with the Brazilian community. Um, yeah, so, like, I and, and I know Huey's very level-headed. And he has a very uh, tabletop approach, which, you know, you said people like to handle physical cards. and, And I think that's a very important consideration to bring to the table, right? I said, like, I come from like a video game realm and I understand systems that are digital and online. But it's important that you respect the wishes of people that play tabletop because people are committing a large amount of their time and money flying to these tournaments to play a paper card game. So it's important that that, you know, people are doing this for a reason. Like, my personal reason is I like to hang out with friends. We get to chill for a week and all that stuff. But that's not as easy with a digital card game. Um, And, you know, people like that atmosphere. So you have to keep that perspective because you have this player base from the last 25 years. You can't just switch over to digital. But at the same time, I know that people on MTGO and in the future arena, I mean... Like, is there a link up there? That question of link up between like digital and live has been asked like in two thousand nine. I remember those discussions like earlier. The second planeswalker points were announced, people were like, Oh, what if your like MTGO results were there? Like so that's like an infinitely long discussion. And like there's I mean, Wizards decided against it and there's probably a good reason for that. Um, but, you know, that, those questions are probably going to pop up more. So, the, so you have to respect that there's the, the wish of the tabletop. How do you integrate all these people that are going to come through Arena? Because, you're, you know, we're assuming that Arena will be at least, I would say, semi-successful uh, from what I've seen. Like, it will attract at least an influx of new players into Magic. So how do you transition these people into tabletop? Or do you have systems for them that are just purely online? And how, do you, and how does that play experience work if they want to connect into, and, and segue into, like, pro-competitive play, even like, they're like, well, I play Arena all the time. There's a GP. How does this actually work? Like, how do I get physical cards? Like, these are, like,
2: really complicated questions, as well, to answer. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I don't know. I had, I while you're talking, I have all these
0: images flashing in my head, like, I know blackjack players love to, like, look really slowly, so they love to feel the cards, and now, but I'm thinking of the, the good question you asked. If Arena is... As successful as it looks, like what do they do with this uh player base that they just assemble like how what do they uh
2: push them towards so man i I don't know yet i I'm sure i I feel like they probably have a plan in mind but uh.
4: Yeah, sure of, of course there's a like a plan like, the, the, the <laughs> thought, like this isn't random like this is a company that's investing a large amount of money into a product this isn't random i don't have to this is obvious from the offset but uh they, they, you know they care so they don't want to come up with a solution that they think uh is not going to work um they're gonna like it, you know it's gonna take the time it takes because and i've seen this in various companies i've, I've worked in that environment sometimes and Sometimes, like, if you work in a small team and you have a community that's very clear, you can just push things quickly. But other times, you have to take the time and you have to consider what the impact is. Because, I mean, I mean the example I use, like, Planeswalker points for MTGO wins or something, that, like, has wide swaths of applications across the board that I can't even phantom recognize. And, like, that's, I, I don't even take that suggestion to heart. That was just a, an example. Is even something that, like, seems small. You're like, well, what does it actually do? I'm like, it just widens an insane world. Because it means you're connecting online accounts to people, um, like for everybody. And then, like, it might influence live play. And that's, that's already like a super complicated question because there's also no cap on like, it's, like all this stuff is super hard. Um, and some people just want to play digitally, uh, they never want to transition into live play. And I think that's something that should also be respected. There shouldn't be this pressure that you have to play. Live, if you wanted uh, to progress, I mean, if you wanted to progress like the absolute highest level, then maybe, sure. But there should be a lot of steps before you even get to that stage where it's mandatory, right? And TGO, if you like, you have to hit the Pro Tour level before you're forced to play uh, uh, actual cards. Like, if you're playing, you can play mocks and PDQs, and like, until you qualify for one of those, you don't have to touch a a card. So as much, so so as many concerns I have with MTGO as a product over the years. Um, one of them that I do not have is that uh, the user experience remains digital, and you never are forced to go out of it unless something absolutely exceptional happens to you. And I
2: think that's a big plus. Um, so so I'll give it props there for sure. And I. Man, lots of good stuff from you. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show with a few last questions. And we're, um,
0: DreamHack, you were there. You've been there in the past. Any, are you going to be there? No, you, I don't know because you tweeted. I'm struggling because I, I don't. It's fine. Like, okay,
4: so Detroit and DreamHack are same weekend, so GG for me. Like, okay, so, so like, uh, go ahead. Like ask the question. Sorry. Yeah,
0: yeah I was actually, if you, if you were going back to DreamHack, and I just realized
4: that I've seen your tweet. Posting like your entire schedule
0: for the next two months and like, completely
4: forgot I, I would, I would hundred percent go back, uh, because I get out of my bed and go to the event. That's a big plus to me. Um, no, but like the experience. Um, so this is gonna sound weird. I don't want to like. I, I, I mean, for me, like Magic is a game I, I, I'm kind of invested in, but I played Hearthstone there because like Magic wasn't part of uh, DreamHack, and it's not this year again. Um. But the big thing for me was with Hearthstone. I find that the play experience is—it's really, really weird. But I do not really, truly. I only enjoy Hearthstone for the solo content, which I think is very high quality, and the absolute top level play. I did arena is like a bad form of draft, as far as I'm concerned. Like Magic Draft is just levels
2: around uh, Hearthstone Arena, and ladder for me is as close to it's it, no it's just it, it's awful like i mean it's maybe the best of a bad bunch but ladder to me is it's just full of like bad feelings
4: like i dislike competitive ladder very strongly but like I, i'm okay with it like at legend rank but like below it, it it's just not a pleasant experience because it, it's just about playing and grinding and that's all it's about you don't feel like you're moving anywhere but competitive hearts if you ever have the chance to actually go to one of those tournaments, there's not that many, and you're going to face some really hard competition, so I'm warning you right now. You're going to go to one or two if you are interested. And it's going to take you a ton of time to prepare, because you have to choose four decks. So, yeah, you have to be like on the nose, and you have to think about your whole lineup strategy and how it's going to work. Um, I was very lucky in Montreal, like in my games, uh, my decks as well. Like I brought uh, a deck that uh, like basically everybody played afterwards. It's just that I identified it as a really strong choice because in Hearthstone what you don't have in Magic is you can ban your opponent's deck. Obviously in Magic you can't do this because they have one deck. So if you ban that deck, well, there's no more deck. So that doesn't work. Um, but in Hearthstone, your opponent can ban one of four decks. So he the idea is that if there's a balancing issue, you can just say this, this is just ridiculous. So get rid of that. And that's the tournament I played in. There was a deck that was like tier zero. It was like beyond... It was, like, the most broken deck the game has seen. Like, it was absurd. It, um, it was roughly um, Skull Clamp Affinity. Like, this is the level we're talking about. Like, that's how good that deck was. Um, but if you got rid of it, then this deck became very good because that was its only awful matchup. So, like, we figured it out. We played a super bad version. I played a super, super bad version of it, but it was still good enough. Um, it was like Kallus of Frog for those that play Hearthstone. But I thought what was interesting with uh, live Hearthstone tournament is like a lot of these people aren't used to playing live, so like you're playing against somebody from the computer and they like normal they take out their frustrations on the computer normally, but they're live so they don't know what to do. Like I had a player physically like throw up their arms in the air and be like, "What the hell is this?" Things you would never see in Magic because they're just used to being in front of their computer. They they just don't have that social habituation of being in front of an opponent and having to be cordial. I I thought the experience was surreal. Uh I think dream hacks in general are good whether you do competitions or not. There's like tons of stuff to do. So um I I mean I would check it out. Like I think that Shadowverse is paying accommodation for competitors, which I think is like unreal. Um Yeah, I mean I I mean I, I love seeing what happens in the digital card space because a lot of people are coming on board that have seen uh what happened with magic and you know they're they're trying their own thing and you can relearn from what they do, and we can all evolve as a result. And I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in that space too.
0: Yeah, yeah Jerry got me onto Shadowverse, and you're right—they're flying. I, I think I read quickly. They're they're paying for accommodation for people flying in just for that. And uh, well, first come, first serve. Probably filled by now, but uh, really nice of them to do that. So I'm jumping on in because uh, yeah, gotta, gotta might might enter just because uh, <laughs> I don't want to just be a spectator um the last one for you eduardo is uh have you been following standard a lot we, we've been trying to oh. narrow andy's uh deck choice with the rptq in toronto and since you know
4: you have yeah. any quick thoughts oh yeah yeah i was hearing about andy's deck deliberation like the ferry so so something that uh that wasn't mentioned in that whole discussion and, and okay so this is a little longer in the co- podcast and this was a while back so to recap Andy seems to really love to ferry um, and I was studying those decks when I was, like, trying to do my choice for Providence. And one of the things that stuck out with me was that Teferi decks were very, very good game one. They were absurdly good because decks are not normally set up to fight the card Teferi. They're not, unfortunately, that well set up because if you have one or two dead cards in hand, it's really hard to fight Teferi. And once Teferi untaps, like, you're just dead. Because the control deck is set up to beat you game one, but you're not set up to beat the control deck. But the fact is, your opponents are boarding in Duress or in the gate. Almost everybody's doing duress or Negate. and that makes the fairy way weaker in these sports board matchups. Uh, because, I mean, negate is horrible for you. Like duress is one thing; like you can still top deck, you can still slam it, and uh, there are things that can happen. But negate is—you're tapping out five mana, and if they're like any kind of not control deck with negate, you're just like stratosphere with the fairy, and and that and you need to rely on torrential cure hawk, which is a good plan B. Um, so as for decks, red black is clearly like if you're if you like, I like you, you won't beat red black because red black is the best deck for a reason, but you have to have a plan against them. So, like, you can accept that you're playing a deck that's not red black as long as you have an extremely clear plan, uh, in your 75 as to deal with them. Because chances are half your matches will be red black or red based decks at, at least at the top level. Some of them will be like get to lava runner and some of them will be rekindling Phoenix. And you need to be ready for both. They're very different decks. I think if you're a red player, Bob's your uncle. You've got choices. You can be super aggressive, a little more mid-rangey. Do what you want. You're You're a happy camper. Uh, Those decks are good. Uh, They've got a proactive plan, and their cards are good in a variety of situations. If you're not a red player, well, that's a little (laughs) harder. You can play Teferi. Teferi is the single most powerful card to resolve. Uh, if it's... But then the rest of the fairy decks may lack, so you have to kind of make that decision. Um, like, as to, to the show. Um, the deck that has won a lot recently has been Blue-Black Midrange. Autumn uh, Birchett won uh, UK Nationals with it. Uh, Emma Hennedy won a Classic. Uh, Jadine wrote about it on SCG Premium. Um, that deck... I think if you're a very good player, is an excellent choice. If you think that you're above the average player quality in your field, I think it's an amazing choice because it allows you to attack from the angle you want or need to attack. It is as close to an aggro tempo deck as you're going to have in this format. So it allows you to adapt your game plan to what your opponent's doing in a deck that they're not already ready to fight as they would with red-black. So I think it's a really interesting choice. Um, I think the Gift decks are okay. Uh, They've had surprisingly good win rates overall. Uh, Not many people play them, though, and a lot of top players choose not to play them. So, um, I I mean, buyer beware for me on on the Gift decks. And if you're not, like, comfortable with them, you will make mistakes. I mean, I played Saltai Gift in Providence, and for sure there were two matches I lost because of my own uh, lack of familiarity with the deck. And that's something important to acknowledge. Uh, Standard is more diverse than you think. Uh I think if you like have zero experience in the form, like literal zero, uh you can take one of the polar strategies. Uh Teferi Control or uh G2 Lava Runner, like super polar strategies, like if you are used to playing red aggro or control, you'll be very happy with those. Uh if you know a bit more about standard, uh red, black, mid-range, blue, black, mid-range are very good choices. And I think if you're, like, super knowledgeable, then you'll know more than me. But uh, I, I guess, like, I would probably... If I, if I was going to go in a field where I felt I was better than the opposition, um, I would play blue-black mid-range, probably. Uh, if I felt I was the same level, I would play a version of red-black that was good for the mirror. Uh, rekindling more, more, Phoenix is your key card, so have more rekindling Phoenix. Start cutting a bit on the Hazarettes. Have more rekindling phoenix. That card is the mirror breaker and all the against all the red decks. So make sure that you're playing the most the highest number of unfair copies in your red mirrors. Like especially if you're picking up the deck cold. It doesn't matter what they do. Phoenix is really bad. So yeah,
2: I I, I think that kind of it's a little broad, but yeah.
3: <laughs> broken it out. Any hope it helps? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Oh no, I've played a lot of blue black mid range and. I'm hearing a lot of uh, very smart people say good things about it, so I might have to uh, give it give it the shot it truly deserves.
0: <laughs> all right, let's wrap things up. What do working people find you and and check your content out, or even stream? Like you know,
4: lay it all out for our listeners. So if they if they want to find me, um, uh, as I said, sorry, so sorry, as I said muted um a lot of the places I, I have to do a life evaluation of what i want to do so right now you can follow me online on uh, twitter at walaumpa so w-a-l-a-o-u-m-p-a i may stream in the future i really want to but i have to figure out how to best set this up so it's permanent because i like the experiment i did in december it was very uh december january streaming Freddie martin next i was cool but i want to make it more regular so that's going to take time But my Twitch stream, same name. Um I will be a lot of GPs uh East Coast mainly, but a little bit in the middle as well. So um I don't want to miss any, but if you're going to uh Richmond, Detroit, Atlanta, many uh not Minneapolis, um Milwaukee, New Jersey, I'll be there. And I might do a trip where I go to Warsaw, Shizuoka, and Liverpool. So there's lots of opportunities to see me there in person. Um, If you have feedback for me, uh, we haven't discussed yet between the three of us, like Willie and Huey, like what the formal feedback process is, if there is going to be any. You are always welcome to message me on Twitter at Umpa, get in touch and say, and like, give me feedback. Um, If you want to give it to me in private, just tell me I want to DM you in private about like your, the consultancy stuff. That's fine, and we'll do that. I, I, people want to be private for a variety of reasons. I do not judge. If you want to give your feedback, private, totally fine. Um, and I think that's mostly the place you're going to get me. For now, Twitter, hopefully in the future, uh, stream.
2: And if you see me at a live event, just come say hi. Absolutely. All right. Um, you were, I don't know. Did you plug MTG
4: Mint Card? Oh right, sorry. Yeah, I forget I write articles. Like so so I'm part of Team MTG Mint Card, which is not relevant to trying to find me, but it's true that I write for uh mtgmintcard.com. Uh and I want to write more articles too. Um I've written in the past um and I need to write more. Uh I did write the last article was on that Hall of Fame ballot that uh we discussed in the episode um, if you, if there's, to be fair, if like you've listened to what I had to say and there was like a topic you wanted me to expand on, uh, feel free to also get in touch with me and ask me like, could you write more about this? And then like, because for me, that tells me that there's a desire to hear more. Um, I mean, last week I asked if people wanted to hear about Salt Lake Gift, I got very few responses. So I got, well, there's two people interested, or maybe not the direction I need to take this in. But if I see a lot more attention in the topic, then I, I will address it. I, I think that's, that's important. And, I, you know, it's always important to get ideas for articles. I read on uh, Yeah, I've,
0: I've referenced a lot of uh, some of the articles you've written in the past, and maybe it's a small section of us, like the people that love when you go deep on a deck, provide that good old sideboard guide, like you Gris's this shadow, yeah. definitely look that up and use that at a tournament and uh, reference that. So. Sweet stuff from Eduardo, Andy. What's new with you? Just uh, outside of the RPTQ, anything? Uh, are you planning any GPs after that?
3: Yeah, I've got GP Detroit, then GP Montreal, and SCG Syracuse in the next um, two months, essentially.
2: All right, you ready? Shout out to so we'll wrap up the show and shouting out uh, people in the first strike. Uh,
0: producers, uh, Derek J. Thomas Eden, Jonathan Good, Matthew Kelly, and Sash Papo. If you like this show, consider donating a few dollars at patreon.com slash first strike, or if not, you can just leave a comment. That'd be great. Subscribe. Hit the thumbs up button, because I think Eduardo was a wonderful guest, and I'd love to have him on, on a future show. With that said, Eduardo, have fun in at the gp and i'm sure you're gonna kill it and thank you so much for uh giving me your time
4: yeah absolute pleasure it was super fun to to talk about a lot of these topics like they've been fresh on my mind the last two weeks the last week or so and it's been like it's been um hectic <laughs> it's been <laughs> difficult to place all of this in the right context so yeah this has been great
0: and, and i'm excited for our listeners to be able to uh our podcast listeners have a a, good, a better sense of, of you as a person and how you think as well i think uh this did an excellent job so for Andy eduardo i will see you guys next week and uh yeah have fun at your event bye guys
4: bye thank you